Hello, and welcome to Lost in the Story. My guest today is a filmmaker and storyteller. You'll know his writing work as one of the co-writers on Dungeons & Dragons A Darkened Wish in his upcoming comic Electropunk. You'll have also seen him playing and running many TTRPGs, including playing Victor Temple, the undisputed Baron of the Valley, on Vampire the Masquerade LA by Night, playing Chateau on We're Alive Frontier, being the DM for A Darkened Wish, The Agony of Kairos, and many more. Please welcome B. Dave Walters. <laughs> I'm dying already. Oh, no. I choked myself with my hype. <sighs> yeah. Also, also, point of clarification. Let's just get to it right off. I'm the only writer of Dungeons & Dragons A Dark and Wish. Tess Fowler was the artist. I was the writer. She's the artist. And I wrote Electropunk. Jeff Womister is the artist. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I have a very simple question for you that I'm sure every writer likes to, to answer. What, to you, makes a great story? To me, storytelling is about structure. Um... If you know how to structure a narrative, everything else falls into place. That's why I'm unusual in that I've written and sold TV and film and comic books and graphic novels and novels, like pretty much every form of the written word, except for poetry. I haven't sold any poetry. I've just done that for fun. But that's because I understand the bones of story. It's in the way I explain it to people is there's 7 billion human beings in the world but we're all made up of the same parts. We all got bone, skin, heart, lungs, organs, but those things combine to create infinite variety. So if you know how to assemble those bones and tissues and sinews, everything else falls into place. So when you're, when you're looking at a story, is there one thing in particular that you always want to nail and get right? Is it like character? Is it, is it the theme? Or is it, is it literally the structure? Literally everything? the structure. Yeah, literally the structure. If you know... If you know the order in which events must take place, and I don't mean that as like a rigid adherence to like three or four or five act structure because that may or may not work pending your medium, but if you understand in which the way in which things must unfold to be psychologically satisfactory for the person experiencing the story. Um, it's after if you know that, then, you know, horror or comedy or romance or whatever aren't that difficult or sci-fi or fantasy or a tabletop stream or anything else um, is not that difficult to do. So, yeah, that's the, a, a properly constructed um, framework of a narrative, which if you've heard my rant about why George R.R. R. Martin is dead to me and he is. <laughs> Part of that is he he he's so famously cavalier about the fact that he doesn't outline and he just sits down at the keyboard and just vomits words out and then gets 500 pages into it and realizes he can't finish. I mean, man, that would have to happen to me exactly once and never again, because when you plan things out in advance and it can be as elaborate or non elaborate a, a process as you like then you know where you're going and you don't waste time spinning your wheels trying to find the story. You know the story in advance and nowhere is it written that you can't change along the way. That's when you know you're really in the vibe of things, when your characters surprise you, when the ending you had planned or the twist you had planned no longer makes sense because you understand them so much that they demand you do something else. Um, yeah, and just as an aside, even though structure is its whole own discipline, the two best books on the subject are Save the Cat, which is a book about mm -hmm. screenwriting, but it's equally applicable anywhere, and Story by Robert McKee. Uh, has, there, has there ever been a story that you, you've written and you've completed all the way through, and then you're like, no, I fucked up. I need to go back and, and fix something. Never. 
Never. <laughs> because I think it through in advance, you know, um, the, the trying to figure out the like if, if I'm writing a, a, a mystery, I know who did it in advance, mm -hmm. you know, um, otherwise you'll mess up your like again, like Battlestar Galactica, you know, when when it's like there's the final five Cylons. The reason why that didn't make sense when it showed up is they really didn't know. And then they had to be like, oh, well, you know, spoiler alert for Battlestar Galactica, although I think the statute of limitations is up on that, <laughs> had to be like, oh, well, Chief is one. Well, Chief's got a kid. Uh, Callie cheated on him. What? Yeah, you know, it's just like uh, it, it, it was very shoehorned in. And this is a mistake that a lot of creators make. And it's not necessarily intentional. This is true of, of people in music, people in writing, where their first thing is the best thing so often because they have no pressure and they have infinite time to just refine and refine and refine and refine and create that one perfect thing. And then we love it. And everybody's like, cool, do it again. Yeah. And you're like, uh, what? You know, uh, and that's not easy to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I just because I, I I this is a, a, a movie now I brought up every time because I, I went back, the, you know, during this time of quarantine to catch up on this before the new one came out. And uh, that that was all three Bill and Ted's, which I feel story is not the strongest thing, but I care so much about the characters, how how they're portrayed uh, and their I've lovability. Yet to see the new one. Yeah. yeah. But that I feel that like that was a case where story didn't matter as much as much as us wanting to see if they would be okay at the end because the story was yeah. i feel like the stories in those were sort of meh but we all we really want to know is do bill and ted succeed at what they want to do yeah they're being excellent to each other um and it's also important to know what your story is about mm -hmm. um which you know is the theme uh but a lot of people overlook that where you're like what's the story about you know well you know uh, Little Red Riding Hood's gonna go visit her grandmother, and the big bad wolf is there. And you're like, no, no, no. The, Red Riding Hood is the main character. What's the story about? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, especially when you get into, into particularly those uh, old fairy tales. You know, it it is a a, a cautionary tale about uh, greed, uh, about paying attention to your surroundings. Um, you know, possibly there's a, there's a lot of sneak disses of capitalism in those old stories, but there's mm -hmm. a lot of things you can unpack. Um, that you know, the the Wizard of Oz is about the Westward Railroad expansion. Um, that's what it's about yeah then you have these other details that help you manifest that and get that across and i would submit that a lot of bad movies don't know what they're about and i think bill and ted's being a, ex, uh, an excellent example of <laughs> them just being like two nice guys trying to do the right thing and get caught up in sort of this comedy of errors that you want to take that trip with them yeah um that's why that story works uh so so then sort of pivoting from that what in, in current media, no matter what it is, what step what steps forward do you think we've taken in, in how we write and, and tell stories in, in, you know, maybe in the last 10, 15 years that you've seen and enjoyed and like would want to shine a light on as like this is an example of what to do? I think in a lot of ways, major studios have stopped treating people like they're stupid. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think a lot of that is because you have the decision makers now are people that grew up with some of these things, how the Marvel Cinematic movies were treated like they were serious. I mean, sure, the Avengers are from comic books that were originally written for kids, but they made real 
cinematic films versus the you know the shot at the avengers uh, in the early 80s you know when hasselhoff was punisher mm -hmm. and, uh, and all that stuff and it was all like very derpy and that wasn't just a lack of the special effects to tell the stories properly is they weren't even trying to you know everything had to be corny and now on occasion i think this can go too far when everything has to be grim dark and everything has to just be so serious you know and not necessarily that either it's just or you, you take something like Guardians of the Galaxy, which was uh, objectively a comedy. You know, yeah. it, it happened to be superhero fare, but it, it's a comedy. It's a funny movie. Um, I think things like that. The Mandalorian, another thing. You know, at it, it, no point does The Mandalorian treat you like you're watching something corny. No. You know? Um, it's 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 a Western that happens to be in space. Arguably, the entire genre is a space Western. No, but it really is a Western that happens to be in space. Um, and that resonates with people. And I, I think that's um, uh, a major victory. I think also um, realizing that you can take risks and the audience will follow you um, with something like Hamilton, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and this is always a challenge because people say they want new things, but they don't really want new things. They want something very familiar in a slightly different way. Uh, that is why we keep getting these endless reboots and many of them fail because you're like, no, I didn't, I really didn't want exactly that. I just wanted something like that. Like uh, Jupiter Ascending, the Wachowskis movie uh, mm -hmm. a few years back. Most people that talk about how bad that movie was never actually watched it. I mean, it was okay. It was not the Matrix. It wasn't, but it, <laughs> it, it did not deserve all the flack it got in... Once the narrative was out there that, oh, this is stupid, and then nobody picked up on it, and then that didn't happen, and that's why a lot of these tentpole franchises uh, never get off the ground because people don't give them a chance. Or you have what they did with the Universal Monster Cinematic Universe where they just assume we will happily consume whatever it is. They just kind of scoop and plop on the plate in front of us, which isn't necessarily true either. So now I they're think, doing uh, all the Blumhouse stuff with that now. They're, they're going like, let's focus on a singular thing, maybe not try to connect everything because that doesn't yeah. always work. Yep. I think a shared cinematic universe is always delightful for the audience when it is done carefully, you know, yeah. like finding out that aliens and predators are in the same universe. It's like, oh, really dope. And then when they overlap on occasion, uh, unilaterally done better in the novels and comics than in the films. Uh, but it's nice. It's nice sometimes. And then go, you know, be be their own thing again. Yeah. I, I, the other thing I, I, I tend to bring up for this is like, you know, I, I very much watch mostly television. Like mo I watch movies, but like television is what I sort of just glommed onto as a as a as a kid and like i feel cartoons are also an interesting thing to look at in terms of where they're sort of shifting uh i think ideas for a younger audience going forward like mm -hmm. watching all the shows that are happening now like like she-ra and steven universe and things like that mm -hmm. i think it, it it's it, it's also another place where you're, you're training your audience to understand difficult or con uh complex ideas that like I you know I watch the show and go oh I get this but like I I try to sit there and imagine it and like my niece and nephew watching this show and do they understand it or is it the entertainment and the other stuff is sort of just being absorbed naturally which I think is a, a good thing. You know I would submit they always were like that though if you go back and you watch some of the old Bugs Bunny cartoons mm -hmm. the the layers of some of the 
some of the nuance there or you know the the cartoons of the 80s with gi joe and transformers and and the things that they were trying to help uh us understand i mean brave star had an episode about drug abuse you know um in now i think it is good that a lot of these ideas are being introduced to kids um early uh even if it's just to make watch you know right wingers head ex- heads explode <laughs> when you know they're the openly gay characters on a superhero show but you know that's the world and diversity matters inclusion matters so you 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 write uh, you know comic books d- d- where what have you seen in that vein that is sort of like you know maybe fueled some creative thing in you that you're like oh i i need to to do more you know honestly i usually hate it when they take an old character and then just shoehorn it in and be like shatterstar's gay now because reasons and you're like what <laughs> like I, I mean i or or this character's now black or sam wilson's captain america now yay like that that doesn't make me happy at all um it when for me diversity and inclusion is new, interesting, compelling characters, not a coat of paint on what we already knew. Um, and I comprehend that it is difficult to create new characters and get the audience to latch onto them and care. I know I do it all the time. Uh, and yet that is still what is uh, necessary to really make that happen. I think the closest anybody ever got, to tell you the truth, was like Alpha Flight in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was too heavy. Uh, you know, North Star came out as gay, but then Diamond Lil had breast cancer. And I'm like, I'm like 12, man. Like, I'm like this is like heavy stuff. Um, but I think that was the closest in that at least it tried to treat these stories as real objective realities that superlative people were still having to deal with rather than checking off checking off boxes on a bingo card now that being said i don't necessarily feel that you know, shatterstar being gay for instance that's just one example off the top of my head wasn't any way detrimental and some kid out there read it and felt great about it so i'm like good it's just i'm I'm never down with a diversity bingo, especially when you start stacking up people for the diversity bingo, where you're like, we included a character who's a gay Asian atheist. And you're like, oh, I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing. You know, like that doesn't count. Um, Yeah. So not necessarily a fan in that regard. Uh, I think for me, the characters exist because of the purpose they serve in the narrative Mm -hmm. in that can vary from place to place like superman and captain america serve the exact same purpose in the narrative even though their powers vary wildly they are the moral superlative they're the person that does the right thing when doing the right thing is difficult that's what you can count on them for and people say it's corny to always be the boy scout and blah 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 but yeah that's actually the hardest role to occupy yeah uh, you know it, being the punisher is easy being captain america is difficult you know um and to me, your race or gender identity or religious orientation or whatever that is are pillars that help hold up your purpose in the narrative. They are not your purpose in the narrative. Mm-hmm. No character is there to be the gay character. No character is there to be the black character. They're there to be whatever they're supposed to do. You know, the friend, the enemy, the hero, the the, the martyr, the love interest, wh- whatever. That happens to be X. Yeah. 
and you can tell the difference when they approach that from the other direction. You know? <laughs> Fan four stick. Exactly. <laughs> Which I still have never seen. <laughs> I was like, I, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. Um, so then on the, the opposite side of that, because I think it's important to talk about this, what are still some big issues you, you see in terms of writing and telling and telling stories in various medias that could be fixed right now, but they're, they're not really putting enough stuff behind it to do that? More, more sensitivity reads. Uh, bounce mm. some things off people in advance. Bounce things off a few people in advance because, you know, no representative minority is a monolith you know i mean not not all not all black people agree not all uh, asians agree not all um you know L latinos or latinx people or hispanic people agree you know like the, there was this whole i mean as of the time of this recording you know <laughs> the the kerfluffle over um bo katan and the mandalorian's armor in the mandalorian and some women were like, that is still just uh, gratuitous, you know, service to men having their chest plates still have a feminine form. And other women were like, uh, but it's not, though. And, you know, people disagree. So if you'd shown that to people in advance, some would have been like, absolutely, it's all good. Others would have been like, absolutely, no. And you kind of got to weigh it. Um, I can say in Electropunk, since Nikola Tesla is Serbian, um, the two main characters, Ruthie and Chuck, are Serbian as well. They just grew up in New York. And I tried to draw as much as I could on Serbian culture and language and words for things. And I talked to Serbian people. I was like, am I using this word correctly? Like, is this okay to say this here? Uh, because I wanted to make sure I did it right. Because when you don't do that, you have multi-million dollar flops like Gods of Egypt. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, where anyone, anywhere along the way could have been like, mm, are you sure? You know? Um, that's white? what, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like Lily White too, you know, like didn't even like have tans. I'm like, why is Ra got blonde hair and blue eyes? What? Um, and, and, you know, I've said publicly many times, that's what put me on the map was when Tomb of Annihilation came out. I was very, very critical of Watsi's tone deaf portrayal of Chult. That the black people were basically, instead of being colonialist savages like they were in the highly problematic 80s portrayal of cult, it was a different time, I give them a pass, they were now just kind of post-colonial, um, you know, whitewashed savages. And I was like, look, man, this is a fantasy game. All the black people could have been on the moon. Like, you didn't have to do this. And it is clear to me at no point in this process did you talk to any black people. And to Watsi's eternal credit, they were like, you're right, you know? And they started working with people like me, Tanya DePass, Gabe James, you know, lots of people, dozens of people, they, it, in, which is all anyone wants, you know, because it was clear that it was not malicious. You just don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And, and when it was brought to their attention, they took steps to rectify it, which that's all you can ask from anyone in life. You know, it's like, hey, you messed up. Could you possibly try and do it better next time? Yes, yes, I can. And then do, you know? And, I, and I'm starting to notice that more like um, the the example, like in the mainstream thing I can think of is on Young Justice and Naomi, uh, Brian Michael Bendis has David Walker co-writing anytime that character appears, mm -hmm. which I think is it, it definitely lends credence to you know, having another voice that is not your own in in the room with you while you're while you're writing a character that's not 
your walk of life. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to be 100% clear, I have to say this out loud, it is not that, um, you know, a cisgendered white male cannot tell a compelling story about a woman or a person of color. You know, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby created the Black Panther. You know, it, it, it is not that. It is just check in on occasion. Because, again, I, I both of the comics I wrote, my leads were both female, you know. But, um, you know, you still bounce it off of people. To be like, uh, just kind of like, here's a here's a vibe check. Like, am I am I am I going the right direction with this? But I know at least in in with Helene, in a darkened wish, she's basically got PTSD. You know, mm -hmm. all of a darkened wish is my love letter to Dungeons and Dragons, but she's my love letter to Anakin Skywalker and Arthas Manethel. Like, she's that same archetype. Of, of the chosen one who goes down the wrong path for the right reason, mm. uh, which again is that's who the character is. The fact that she is also um, a woman is a pillar of which that is built on, you know, but it is not her defining trait. Her defining trait is she's a very powerful wizard that goes face first in a situation she probably shouldn't. Um, and us learning from her because the story is basically a tragedy. No, you know, spoiler alert. You know, if you haven't read it yet, you should. Although in season three is on, uh, is running right now of the Dark and Wish stream where we're exploring what happens after the graphic novel. But her being essentially misled and consumed by well-meaning hum hubris is what the story's about. You know, um, I just wanted to do that consciously through the lens of a female protagonist because I wanted a woman protagonist that was still objectively powerful and still objectively heroic and still could be like a full, complete person, you know, warts and all, basically. Yeah. In in running and playing RPGs, has that influenced or changed how you've done writing or does it does it feed into it in a in a way that's very useful to you? Um, it's useful to learn how to put on a number of hats, mm. you know, um, and, and be able to wear many guises in a way that feels genuine, you know, and to be able to see through the lens of another person and another perspective. And that counts if you're playing and it also counts if you are storytelling. Mm. I think the number one thing I learned about myself is uh, I realized certain themes kept coming up with all of my characters because that was just me that was coming out in all the characters. Like um, when I created Chateau for We're Live Frontier, I did not intend for him to ultimately like, you know, become this revolutionary leader that would rule the city. In fact, when we created him, he was a he was a, a leader in exile. And a lot of the choices I made with him are just about... If he's been living on his own for like three years now, what kind of person could survive that? And what would that do to a person? Like that was kind of the, the, the guiding principle. And then Victor Temple for L.A. by Night was the next major character that I made after Chateau. And I expressly was like, oh, okay, so I'm going to make not Chateau. He's kind of this surly loner. He's going to be a man of the people. He's this revolutionary leader. I expressly was like, he's not looking to lead anything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in, in 
Chateau was kind of like, it led this like very difficult, anguished existence. I was like, I realize vampires are monsters, but who would be having a good time? A nightclub owner, you know, like, yeah. like a, like a music mogul would probably be having a blast as a vampire. And so that's how I made Victor. And then three or four episodes in, I saw a shot at becoming, at becoming the Baron and I took it cause I am who I am. Uh, and it was like literally in the exact same spot again of like, you know, a revolutionary leader with like unruly community members that, you know, don't really listen and constantly acting in, in their own uh, worst interests. And then after that, the next one to make was Freely, where again, I was like, so Victor and Chateau were both these like, um, uh, you know, farsighted strategists playing the game multiple moves ahead. I'm like, Freely's a halfling of action. Ince his dump stat. He's not playing at anything. He's just lucky, <laughs> you know? Um, and I still was like, but they all end up being party faces. I will not be the party face, but he's charisma built. So it's still, still ends up being like, I have to like make him not trying, like be the face and be the one that talks everybody through everything. Like I have to make him just this, um, objectively sweet boy that is like, yeah, no, this thing is bad and I'm just going to go and go and, and crush it because I bump up against the sides of who I am. Yeah. You know, and then I either have to like lean into it or very consciously turn and go the other direction. Like, cause again, then when I created Marcide for Pirates of Leviathan, I created not freely. <laughs> I was like, freely is small. I'll play a large size creature. He's a bugbear. Freely is this, uh, you know, cheerful, sweet person. Marcide's going to be terrible. Uh, Freely is heroic. Marcide's a shadowy ganker. Like, literally, it was all... They're each trying to exist. It's almost like a, a Kabbalistic tree of life where they're, like, apart but connected. <laughs> is, uh... Man, it's it, a working. It, it's, it's interesting, because I've, I've bumped up against similar things in, in playing D&D where it's like, okay... This is like I, I sort of pick up a, a part of, of me to put into a character, like maybe just like a trait or something. And then I'm like, OK, I want to react this way. He's like, wait, no, no. As much as I have the experience to know that I wouldn't do this, this person doesn't. And it's 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 I think it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition uh, for, for acting and, and maybe it's writing in general. But like you were talking about going not, you know, you, you found that you had similar things that you went back to. When you're writing a story, uh, is it easier for you to pull away from uh, what you would generally go to and go maybe make a zig and and not the zag? I usually have a pretty good mind for character and who these people are and by mm. extension how they would react. What I realize, my mistake though, is I have to be careful with what I'm watching while I'm writing because <laughs> it will unconsciously affect things. Yeah. Uh, if I watch too much Star Wars, then, you know, uh, zombie cyborgs uh, that want to assimilate everybody, or too much Star Trek, rather, sorry, uh, you know, zombie cyborgs are, are the enemy of the day. You know, I've, I've been watching too much Star Wars, uh, someone's father who they thought was dead, or I'll switch it a little. It's your mother you thought was dead, turns up and is the head of the enemy army, you know, like that. I subconsciously steal from the last thing that has, like, top of mind awareness. So I have to be, you know, cautious of that. <laughs> so what inspired you to write and tell stories? Was there a singular piece of media you saw or where you were like, I, I need to do that? Something that just hit you at your core at a, a certain age? 
Uh, it's literally been my whole life. I created my first superheroes when I was five, you know? Uh, my mom, and, and I still have them. I have them in my back pocket to insert into a story so that <laughs> when they when they premiere, I could be like, ah, when I was five. My mom was uh, into science fiction, and so it has always been um, a, a major part of my life. I can't remember a time when I wasn't taking these grand journeys of imagination, and I knew very early I wanted to do them too. I think the thing that was most formative, though, was when I was in high school in the 12th grade, I was exposed to Shakespeare. Um, in uh, specifically Macbeth, specifically Macbeth, something about Macbeth was the Rosetta Stone. You know, that was the the key that just changed something in me uh, that resolved me wanting to be an English major and 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 write and and be creative and knew that I, I wanted that to to be my life. So, the 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 simple answer is always, but the but the specific answer, you know, it's some the. The Scottish play, man, you know, that I, I and, and it's it still always comes back to that archetype because it's the same thing. He, he's another Anakin Skywalker, Arthas Manethel type, you know, that I am into blood so far come that to turn back would be as difficult as continue over, you know, that although arguably Macbeth didn't really mean well, he was just told he could be king and all he had to do was like kill one person. And he was sort of like, mm, all right, you know, I, I don't know that he was doing that for what was best for the kingdom. But the the concept of the fact that he wasn't necessarily this terrible dude who kind of went down this slippery slope of becoming a very terrible dude. Um, I don't know why that resonates with me so much, but, you know, the first movie I can ever remember seeing in my whole entire life is The Return of the Jedi. So maybe maybe that's why that seed was just planted, in, you know, in the depths of the soil. So I, I had a I had a very similar uh, thing about like this genre in, in general. When I was, people are going to yell at me and call me young. When I was five, the re-releases came out. Mm -hmm. I think that was like 97. Mm -hmm. or, yeah, 97, 96. I was, oh, my sweet summer child. I'm turning 29 next week. <laughs> hey. Uh, and I remember seeing the first one in the theaters. And like as a five-year-old, like I have pushed myself back now. It's thinking like this maybe what it was what it was like seeing that movie in 77. And I went in and... I had never seen anything like it before, and it blew my, my fucking mind. And I was like, I asked my mom, when's the next one? And she's like, it's already out. I'm like, what do you mean? This is a brand new movie. And then not too long after that, we got the, the VHS box set of all three movies, and I, I watched those tapes so much as a kid. Yep. And it just, I was I was hooked. You know, my, my favorite part about all of this is because of the Clone Wars, there's an entire generation of kids that are growing up knowing Anakin Skywalker is nothing but a hero. Yeah, right. So when that reveal comes, it's like, wham! <laughs> You're like, oh no! <laughs> and, it, it, and a thing that I sort of realized in doing this and uh, is I've, I've been saying, uh, to me, genre is a vehicle by which you can tell palatable and difficult subjects in a fun and entertaining way to like, you know... Sometimes you don't want to beat someone over the head with a, with a message, but if you couch it in you know sci-fi or fantasy, you might be able to reach someone you normally wouldn't. And I've seen that a lot more recently in like current media, and it's something that I think is super important and relevant now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, a, a spoonful of sugar. You know, and and I think that is that is why we're seeing the essentially progressive move left that we're seeing in the world is that. 
hatred and bigotry require ignorance to flourish. Yeah. Uh, I'm from Little Rock, Arkansas, man. I just raised Southern Baptist. You, you, I know what's up, you know? And, and, and when, you know, you're like, well, well gay people are evil. And you're like, mm, I don't know. You know, that, that kid in my high school, you know, in, in my, in my science class, you know, they seem fine. You know, uh, Muslims worship the devil. I mean, Mo's on my basketball team with me. I, I, <laughs> you know, it, it, and when you see portrayals of different kinds of people, all different kinds of people, yeah. it makes it harder to vilify and demonize them, um, which is why diversity and inclusion matter. Both people need to see themselves reflected in both heroism and villainy, yeah, uh, and also see other people reflected in both heroism and villainy to understand that we've got we all have that inside of ourselves that's that's what story is really about it is an instructive tool about what it means to be human yeah. um and that won't work if you don't see yourself there i sort of credit new new media uh, uh from introducing me to some things i you know didn't know about uh, i i always say that uh sheila tomorrow introduced me to the fact that there's non-binary people in the world mm -hmm. and i did not i did not know that was a thing and i was like mm -hmm. oh take it in stride, lock that away. And I met a, uh, maybe a year later, one of my dear friends who's a trans man, uh, I met him at a, a, a thing and then I hung out with him at a con and I didn't really know until I sort of heard him interacting with people. And one of the first things I asked him was, what are your preferred pronouns? And he, he told me much later that he goes, that meant a lot to me because no one ever really entered a conversation with me that early asking me that. And it made me feel instantly comfortable. Yeah, you know, and, and it's such a simple thing. And a lot of times, you know, people are like, well, I, you know, I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me or whatever. And I'm like, you know what? It doesn't have to. You know, if if, if, if that is uh, a person that you respect, then uh, respect their wishes. And it takes no effort whatsoever to be kind to somebody. Yeah. Um, I will say, just as an aside, uh, this last season of Doctor Who way overdid it, though. Like, it I'm just behind. got... I watched all of her first season, I think, with the exception of maybe like some of the specials. I'm like maybe five or so episodes behind of the show. I really enjoy the 13th Doctor. I really enjoy Jodie Whittaker's performance, yeah, but the, the, the stories have been it. But there's just a few times like she literally just launches like directly into like speeches. And I'm like, OK, wait a second. I agree with what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And if even I'm like, this is a bit much, <laughs> then it's probably a bit much, you know, but I digress. Um, yeah. So I, I think, well, this is a perfect place to, to bring it in. Uh, is there anything that you would like to plug and, where people can follow you online if they so choose? At B. Dave Walters on Twitter is the best place. I'm somewhere doing something seven days a week. I <laughs> don't expect you to try and keep up with all of it. I barely can. And I'm there for all of it. Um I would just say, uh, well, yeah, in, in Dungeons and Dragons of Dark and Wish, available everywhere. I get it at Barnes and Noble, which is a mind freak. Um, the first two seasons are up on YouTube, on uh, Q Times YouTube, of the streaming tie-in um, that runs in parallel and intertwines with the graphic novel. Um, Electropunk is uh, the Kickstarter funded, but uh, you can still uh, order it. Um, the post is pinned at the top of my Twitter as well, at B. Dave Walters. Uh, and more than anything, I would just say, if you're thinking about writing, if you're thinking about telling a story, do it. 
don't wait, do it. Even if you just write a, a single sentence every single day, the time will pass and you will look up and you will have something because the time is going to pass no matter what. So might as well make, uh, make the use of it while you can. And um, you can do it. You can do it. There's a story inside of you that only you can tell and the world needs to hear. So don't hold back. Put it out there. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. This has been Lost in the Story with your host, Wesley Marshall. Music composed by Chase Pathia, who you can follow on Twitter and TikTok at Chase Pathia and on Instagram at Gamer Composer. His website is chasepathia.com. Cover art for this podcast provided by Marcy Edwards, who you can follow on social media on Twitter and Instagram at Mary Hellscream. Thank you for listening. See you next time.